Let's pray. Our Father and our God, as we come from the communion table, our hearts are so deeply touched by your mercy and your grace. For you have given to us a salvation that we do not deserve. We gather together to worship and bless your name. And thank you, Lord, for the sweet memory of redemption, of forgiveness of sins. I pray, Father, that in the midst of our worship, that you would be lifted up. And in being lifted up, you will draw all people to you. May we see the glory of our Savior in the beauty of the Christmas story and understand once again that it was all for us. In your name we pray, and all God's people said, Amen. Last year, you might recall, Christmas Day fell on a Sunday. Uh, That's a rather unusual and unique thing. The next time it happens is 2033, another 10 years. By then, we should be done with the Book of Romans, we hope. But what is amazing is that when that does occur, Sunday is Christmas Day, sometimes churches have a very unusual reaction. A famous author noticed this seemingly contradiction in Christian behavior when he said, if a stranger came from another planet and noticed that while many Christians were arguing about the freedom of displaying religious symbols in the town square on Christmas, like a manger, how unusual it would be to see that some churches were canceling their Sunday services because Christmas came on a Sunday. Their reason, well, it's family time. Christmas is family time, and so it is. We had a service the night before, Christmas Eve service. Or we'll give you videos so you can have your own service at home with your family. All of that sounds high and good, except behind it is a disposition that is symptomatic of the church itself in many ways. And that is, we don't want things to kind of squeeze into our normal schedule. It's a distressing attitude that church attendance is inconvenient on Christmas Day. So we have simply said that whenever that happens, when Sunday, Christmas Day is on a Sunday, we're going to gather for worship. Now we know some of you that may be traveling, we know sometimes people can't make it. That, that's all understandable, but we're not just going to say it's kind of convenient or inconvenient and therefore we won't worship. When you think about it, everything about Christmas is unique. I I like that word unique, an adjective that describes something being one of a kind. It's the only one of of a kind. It's without equal or equivalent. It's unparalleled. It indeed is unique. When we use the word rare, we're talking about a few things. But when we talk about unique, we're talking about one in particular thing. 
And everything about Christmas is unique. I would invite you to open up your Bibles to the book of Luke, and we're going to look at some unique things about the nativity story, the birth of Jesus. And the first thing is simply that it is unique in process. That way it came about the birth of Jesus. And I'm going to begin reading with verse 26. Not all these verses will be on the screen, but some will. Verse 26 says that in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent to Nazareth. Now the sixth month refers to the pregnancy of Elizabeth, a relative of Mary. And you read about that in the earlier verses. But Gabriel was sent to Nazareth which, by the way, was a despised town, a town that was looked upon with disdain. Uh, The verse out of John chapter one, can any good thing come out of Nazareth, shows the attitude toward the people who lived in the northern region of Israel. But Gabriel went to Nazareth, to a town in the Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, who was a descendant of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. The angel said to her, greetings, you are highly favored. By the way, that's where we get the Ave Maria. But Ave is simply a greeting. It's hello, Mary. It's not a prayer. Not a prayer at all. And you've got an angel talking to Mary. It's not an angel praying to Mary. It's an angel greeting Mary. And then gives this salutation, you are highly favored, or literally, you are greatly graced. Now, the translation in some Bibles has, you are filled with grace. And people have taken that concept to mean that Mary is so filled with grace that she can dispense grace to other people, but there's no teaching of that in the scripture at all. It doesn't say she's filled with grace. She has been, in this unusual, unique situation, greatly graced and highly favored. Now Mary was troubled, verse 29. A very interesting word that's found only here in the Greek New Testament. And it speaks about being wholly disturbed. Your whole being is agitated and filled with alarm. Mary was greatly troubled at the words, sometimes thinking that an angel comes to pronounce death, often to pronounce judgment. She wondered what kind of greeting this might be, but the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And now we notice in verse 31, you will conceive, this is the favor she receives, you will conceive or you will be with child and give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus. There's a whole lot in that verse. But to a virgin, to receive the news that she is with child, added on to that the detail that no woman in that day would ever know, it's going to be a boy, before sonograms by the way, And we've already got the name picked out for him. You're you're not going to get to choose the name. And all of that showing tremendous significance. So this unusual process is a virgin 
conceiving a child. So Mary's response in verse 34 says, how can this be since I am a virgin? By the way, this is the third time in a few verses that we are told she is a virgin. If you go back to the prophecy in Isaiah, behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. The debate over that uh, Old Testament word is that it could mean a young woman. But of course, it's not much of a sign if a young woman has a child. When you come to the New Testament, the Greek is even more specific, and the three words used for virgin can only mean a woman who's never had a relationship with a man. She indeed is a virgin. And that's why Mary questioned the process. She didn't question the promise but she questioned the process. You and I spend a lot of time questioning the promise. Lord, how come this isn't happening in my life? You said it would and it's not. And we get hung up on, is it true? Will it ever happen? And that shows weakness of faith, almost a denial. But as Christians, we can follow Mary with a question about the process. Lord, you told me that you were going to with me, be with me in every situation, that you will provide a way of escape. I don't see it happening, but I'm going to trust you. The process is in your hands. It doesn't make sense to me. But your promise can never fail. So the angel came back with a little more information in verse 35. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One born to you will be called the Son of God. Now there are many people who want to know more about the process. Conceived of the Spirit. How does that work? We don't know. The scripture doesn't tell us. And I think we go into dangerous territory when we try to figure out what the Bible has never declared to us. The power of the, uh, of the Lord has overshadowed her. We couldn't explain the process or, or understand it even if it were explained to us, except God is in it. In fact, do you notice the Trinity in all of this? For it's the Holy Spirit coming a power, uh, upon her. It's the power of the Most High overshadowing her and the birth is the Holy Son of God. The Trinity is all throughout the scripture and here it is at the very beginning, the incarnation, the beginning of the human life of Christ, not the beginning of the life of Christ, for he is the eternal Son of God. Mary, there's no reason for you to be embarrassed about this. Surely it is fitting that a supernatural person coming into the world should be born in a supernatural way. Now, if you lack faith and reason is your king, you'll reject the Christmas story because this has never happened and it cannot happen without a supernatural God. But if you believe in a God that is bigger than you, and by the way, if you believe in a God that is not bigger than you, there's no sense in believing in that God. But if you believe in a God that is bigger than you, it is no hard thing for him to do the impossible. 
In fact, jumping down just a little bit here to verse 37. Verse 37 tells us, no word from God will ever fail. That's what undergirds the promise given to Mary. This unbelievable promise, no word of God shall ever fail. Or here it is in the New American Standard Bible, I think the ESV is the same, for nothing will be impossible with God. Do you believe that? It's true. It's true. Every promise is true. God has his own way about making it happen and the process that he uses, but every word of God is true. I like the American Standard Version of 1901 that simply says, for no word of God shall be void of power. When God speaks behind his word and his promise is his omnipotence. And he will do what he has said he will do. And you can bank on that wonderful promise. But does it matter? Well, there's a lot of people telling us today that the virgin birth doesn't matter. I have a Christmas CD that I love listening to some very excellent artists and they do so well in proclaiming the gospel but when they get to one of the famous songs instead of using the word virgin that's in all the old Christmas hymns they substitute um, I think young woman or something like that and I go why in the world are you doing that why be embarrassed is it important it absolutely is important because you take out the divinity of the, of the son born and reduce him only to humanity, we lose our savior. Because salvation cannot come from man. It must come from God, the God-man. Yes, he is man, but he is 100% God. Take it out, and it makes all the difference in the world. Uh, I love watching A Christmas Carol by Dickens or reading it. I never seem to read the whole thing. I get about halfway through and then New Year's comes and I give up reading. I only get to see a ghost or two. But the interesting thing about Dickens is from the very beginning, he says something in the introduction. He says, I think it's the very first words, right? Marley was dead to begin with. There's no doubt about that. Old Marley was as dead as a doornail. And then he says this, this must be distinctly understood or nothing wonderful can come from the story that I'm about to tell you. Yeah, if Marley's not dead, it doesn't make any sense. And if Jesus is not God, there is no redemption for us. It makes all the difference in the world. So Mary hears this news, and I love the way she responds. Her question is not on the promise, on the process, as we said. But at the very last verse, Mary says, here I am. I'm your servant. Do to me whatever you want to do. What an amazing statement. Did she have some understanding of what she would face? Did she have some... Uh, Clear thinking that she would be the target of gossip and slander. That she would break the heart of her betrothed. 
that her family would, would undergo all of this turmoil as well. You know, back in 1947, Jackie Robinson was chosen by Branch Rickey to break the color barrier in Major League Baseball. Right? So Jackie becomes a player for the Brooklyn Dodgers, 1947. Now, there are a couple things, a couple prerequisites about the person chosen to break the color barrier. Number one, they had to be good. <laughs> Think about the fact that if he wasn't good, oh my, everything would go back. The tables would be turned. But Jackie was good. Rookie of the year that year, a couple years later, MVP of the league, an all-star six times, inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame. Oh, he was, he was good. He was exciting. Changed baseball. But there was something else about Jackie. Not only did he have to be good, but he had to be tough. Because he would have threats and slander and abuse and opposition even from his own team. And that may be one of the most amazing things about Jackie Robinson. You know, when the Lord chose Mary, he had greatly graced her and gave her strength, but she would have to be tough. She was a good woman, a righteous woman, but she calls herself a sinner in the very song that Pastor Doug read a moment ago. She's in need of a savior. So she wasn't perfect, but she was good and she was tough. And by God's grace, Jesus was born through this amazing process. What child is this who laid to rest on Mary's lap is sleeping? Whom angels greet with anthems sweet while shepherds watch are keeping. This, this is Christ the King. Second unique thing about this, and we see this in the same portion of scripture, regards the person. So there is a unique process and there is a unique person. Verse 32 says, he will be great and will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he'll reign over the house of Jacob. So we already noticed that indeed he was going to be the son of Mary. Now we are told he is the son of God. We're told his name would be Jesus, but now we're told he is going to be great. The son of the most high, which is amazing. In, in, in this wonderful babe, we call Jesus, you have this transcendence, the transcendency of God who is far above it, above us, very different from us, and yet Emmanuel, God with us, right? So the transcendency of God and the imminency near us, close to us, on our side. The name Jesus shares something about his mission, for he shall save his people from their sins. We read in Matthew's account, Son of God shows his status. Son of the Most High, on the throne of David, indeed God Almighty. When we started studying the book of Romans in chapter one, Paul said 
almost the very same thing, son of Mary, son of God. But he used these words. He was talking about the gospel regarding God's son. As to his earthly life, he was a descendant of David, their son of Mary. But through the spirit of holiness was appointed to be the son of God in power by the resurrection from the dead. Son of Mary, son of God. Brilliant. Amazing. Fantastic. It could be no other way. And with this wonderful, unique person, we have a duality, perfectly human and altogether God. His transcendency shows his omnipresence. He's so great and so above us that we live and move and have our being in him. But he is with us. We studied that in Romans chapter eight. God is with us. God is for us, Romans chapter eight. Emmanuel is with us in our humanity, on our side, to lift us up and redeem us by his blood. That's the great story of Christmas. And so we sing joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Joy to the world, the savior reigns. Let all of us, our songs, employ. That is, let's put our songs to work in singing the praises of the king, for he rules the world with truth and grace. Don't you love the great carols of the season? And sing the second and third and fourth and fifth verses too, because sometimes the best best theology is found there. Let me mention a third unique thing about this birth, and for this we must jump into chapter two, it occurred in a very unique place. The process revealed the Trinity at work in the virgin birth. By the way, the the birth of Christ really was natural. It was the conception of Christ that was supernatural. And it's a unique person who is both God and man. And it took place in a very unusual situation. Luke chapter two tells us that Mary gave birth to her firstborn, a son, and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger. So Mary giving birth to Jesus, I mean, the birth was natural. The swaddling clothes, natural for that day. They would tightly wrap a baby, hoping that this would help them with their growth. Uh, They would change the baby daily, rubbing oils on the baby's body, but continued the swaddling often for six months. That was normal. But for a baby to be born and then laid in a manger, the stable, we, we don't know exactly what it was, but the manger, we do know. And that was unusual enough For the angels to tell the shepherds, verse 12, this will be a sign for you. You'll find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. So every mom longed to have a child and that child would be treated with the utmost love and respect and the humility of a stable 
the, the lowliness of a manger for bed, that indeed is unusual and unique. But everything about this birth is unique. I love the song that says, once in royal David city stood a lonely cattle shed where a mother laid her baby in a manger for his bed. Mary was the mother mild, Jesus Christ, her little child. There's one final thing I want to mention to you that is unique about this birth. I'm sure there are others. But you've got the process and the person and the place. But notice the unique purpose of it all. And if you go down in Luke chapter 2 to verse 34, you see old Simeon who was told he wouldn't die until he saw the salvation of Israel, God's Messiah. And when he saw Mary and Joseph come in eight days after Jesus was born to do for him according to the law, to name him, the Bible tells us that Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against. We talked about Mary having to be tough, verse 35, as that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword, Mary, will pierce your heart as well. Your heart will be broken in the process as you bring the Savior of the world in to this world. So the Bible tells us the unique purpose of Jesus, there's a finality to it. There's a sense of destiny to it. He is destined to divide humanity. We divide humanity all the time. We divide humanity by races, uh, by genders. Used to do that, still should. Um, we divide humanity by um, places where they live, financially, all kinds of different ways. But the best division of humanity is this. Are you in Christ or no? Saved or lost? What does the scripture say? Falling or rising. Jesus makes the difference. Now, you have to understand that all humanity is condemned, and Jesus came to save. He didn't come to condemn. We're condemned already. He came to save. But those who reject him fall away, as it were, from his grace and his offer. This theme is found in many places. We see it here in Luke, falling and rising of many. Remember it in Romans, which was a quotation from Isaiah 28? And Peter takes that same quotation. So here's the third time in the New Testament you've got this theme, and I'm sure it's found in other places, but Peter puts it this way, quoting from Isaiah and the Psalms, see I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. That's Isaiah 28. Now to you who believe this stone is precious, but to those who do not believe... The stone the builders rejected is still the cornerstone, Psalm 118. But he's also a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. 
and they stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. So the Bible makes it abundantly clear that Jesus is the watershed of all humanity, and by rejecting him, you are falling. You're falling into a Christless eternity. You're rejecting your only hope for salvation. But by trusting him, when you put your faith in him, you'll never be put to shame. And that begins the rising of the life and the journey to the celestial city and the hope of heaven, all because of the mighty grace of God. Jesus, he shall save his people from their sins. There's divinity in that. He, the son of God. There's certainty in that. He shall save. And there is comfort and hope in that. He shall save us from our sins. And therefore we rejoice in the good gift of God. But it must be received I think that may be the hardest thing of all. For many people are willing to give God credit in sending his son out of love and people might even be moved emotionally to the story but they don't want to die to believe it. You say, what do you mean die? You've got to die to yourself. You've got to turn from your sin. When you give your heart and soul to Jesus, he becomes king. And there cannot be two kings in your life. Oh, that's the hardest thing, to receive the gift. There was a story years ago of a son who was graduating. And he wanted a car as a gift. That's kind of an interesting desire. I want a car for a gift. But his father was wealthy, could easily pay for it. And so the son was hoping to get a gift of a car for graduation. Instead, he got a Bible. And he was ticked. You see, his dad was a Christian and trying to, trying to push Christ on him as he saw it, you know. Make a decision, turn to the Savior, go to church, pray, and all this. And so he graduates and his dad gives him a Bible And he just threw it into the drawer. And when he left home, he didn't take the Bible. But I think it was his dad's funeral that brought him back. And he went through his belongings and found that old Bible. Decided to open it up. And there on the inside of the Bible was a check to cover the price of a car. And he said, son, congratulations. I'm graduating. I delight to give you good things. So many people look at this Bible and say, boy, that's not what I want. I want fun. I want want prestige. I want power. I want a good life. I don't want this. And you open it up. There it is. The longing of your heart is found in Jesus. Let's pray. Oh, Father, there are people here today, I'm sure, who know the story about Christmas, but they don't know the Savior of Christmas because they're not willing to turn from their sin 
and trust Him. I pray that they will today open their hearts, draw them to yourself. May the conviction and guilt of their soul drive them to the only place where forgiveness can be found, the cross. In the name of Christ we pray, amen.